Let's worship God now by reading His Word as it is found in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Read this in connection with the head of our catechism's treatment of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. We start at verse 21, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the counsel. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea, Nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. 
bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Thus for we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. It's on the basis of Matthew 5 and many other passages that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 40. Question 105, what doth God require in the sixth commandment, that neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he accounts all these as murder. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a connection between the instruction given in this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 40, and the instruction given in the very beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2. The connection between this Lord's Day and Lord's Day 2 is that they both speak about anger and about hatred. This Lord's Day, Lord's Day 40, in developing the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, teaches us that God abhors the causes of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge. Lord's Day 2, when Lord's Day 2 treats the subject of anger and hatred, it does so from a different perspective. Lord's Day 2 is not setting forth the commandment, thou shalt not hate. But what Lord's Day 2 is teaching us, has taught us about is, what is the cause of man's misery? Why is it that you are miserable? Why is it that I am miserable? What is the cause 
for man's misery. Lord's Day 2 teaches us that the reason for man's misery is sinfulness. Lord's Day 2. Whence knowest thou? How do you know your misery? The answer, out of the law of God. Are you able to keep the law of God perfectly? Question five. In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The reason, according to Lord's Day 2, for your misery is your sinfulness. What is your sinfulness and mine? Our sinfulness is we hate God and the neighbor. And I believe it is incredibly important at the outset of this sermon that we understand, acknowledge, and confess that that is the reason for my misery. The reason for my misery is not all of the difficulties and hardships that come to me on this earth, though those are grievous to be borne. My misery in the deepest sense is not that God has put difficult people in my life, people who are hard to love, people who are hard to get along with, though that is a burden grievous to be borne, that is not the reason for your misery. You see, it's very easy for us to do exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. God came down to them and God asked them the probing questions about who was at fault. Who did this? And how did they respond? Adam blamed his wife. Eve blamed the serpent. It's not my fault. Somebody else's fault that this or that happened. And for as long as we continue blame shifting, it's somebody else's fault that there's misery in my life. It's because of this individual that my life is, has no joy and no happiness anymore. For as long as we continue blame shifting and saying it is this or that person's fault for the misery in my life, and beloved congregation, there will be no lifting of that misery from off of your heart and your soul. But the starting point is recognizing it is because of my hatred. Because I am prone to hate God and the neighbor, that there is misery in my life. And then recognizing, acknowledging, and confessing that reality from the depths of a broken and a contrite heart, God comes with the comfort of the gospel. And God says, I'm going to lift that misery out of your life through the work of my Son, Jesus Christ. God's prohibition of murder. First, we'll see the command. Second, the urgency. 
of this, and then third, where the gospel is at. What stands behind this commandment? Before we look at the command itself, what stands behind it? We have in the previous commandments been using the figure of a room. We enter through the doorway into that room there. Over the doorway is the title, the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill. As we enter into this room entitled the Sixth Law, what do we see about God? What is He teaching us about Himself? Two things that come out that stand behind and underneath of this commandment. First of all, we see revealed in the Sixth Commandment that God is the God of infinite and unending and perfect love. It's because God loves that God comes to you and says, don't kill. Don't kill. I am the God of love. He's the God of perfect love. He's always been love. 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love. He's dealt eternally as the God of love within Himself. The Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they dwell together in family love, the Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father, and the Holy Spirit being the breath of God who goes forth and who knits them together in that bond of love. God is love. That in the first place. The second reason why God comes with this commandment is God is the God of life. It's because God created life and sustains life and gives unto His people continued life that God comes to you this morning and God says, don't kill. Don't kill. God in the beginning shaped man out of the dust of the ground and God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And God continues to this present moment in time to be the God who gives life, precious life that only God is capable of giving. Man can come out with so many different inventions, so many new technologies, but man cannot create life. God created life. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139. God's creation of life was an act of His love. Was it not, if we may tie these two principles together, on the one hand, God is the God of love, on the other hand, God is the God who gives life. To tie these two ideas together, God's creation of life was an expression of His love. It was in love that God shaped man. God did not need man. God did not need Adam. God is not dependent upon the creature. So why then did God even create the creature? Why did God shape you and me and all of His children? God created life as an expression of His love. It was so that God could fellowship with us, His children. God is love. And in love, God has created us. And this God now comes to us and He prohibits murder. Thou shalt not kill, says this God of life. Murder. Murder. Murder is a more literal translation of the Hebrew, thou shalt not kill. God in the Sixth Commandment is not telling us that there is never 
a sense, never a way in which the life of a man may be ended. There is a time in which man's life may be ended when God, through the government to whom God has given the sword, ends the life of the guilty murderer. The government has been given the sword. What God is forbidding here is not every act of killing, but what God is forbidding here in this sixth commandment is murder. God is forbidding here the unlawful, angry, sinful ending of the neighbor's life. Certainly included in this commandment is the unjust killing of the baby inside the womb, abortion. The world is shameless in its support of abortion. Just yesterday, I read an article about a statement made by the governor of the state of Washington supporting abortion. He said, quote, This is a matter of choice, and we are proud in Washington to stand up for abortion access, unquote. Murder includes the ending of one's own life through what is called suicide. When one in the act of highest selfishness decides that they would be better off dead than alive. God is the God of love, and God is the God of life. And he says, thou shalt not kill. But further in this commandment, God teaches us also that we are not to have envy or hatred or anger against the neighbor. The sixth commandment is not just about abstaining from physically killing the neighbor, ending the life of the person that God has put in our pathway. If that were the case, that this commandment was simply about not physically ending the neighbor's life, then there would be no need to come to church this morning. We could all give ourselves a congratulatory pat on the back for our successfully keeping the sixth commandment. I haven't gone out and killed the neighbor I've done a good job in this regard, so there would be no need even to have this commandment preached unto us. But the Catechism teaches us in answer 106 that in forbidding murder, God teaches us that He abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of Revenge And how serious are these sins? So serious that he accounts all these as murder. The catechism in saying that the causes of murder are counted by God himself to be as serious as murder is following in the instruction of Jesus Christ as it's given to us in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. You've heard that before. It's been said ever since Moses' law was given unto the Israelites at Mount Sinai, Don't kill. And if you do kill, then there's judgment. There are consequences. There's a penalty for that sin of killing. You've heard this for thousands of years now, but Jesus says there's more to this commandment. This commandment isn't just about physically ending the life of the neighbor, but, 22, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka, that is a vain fellow, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. 
in forbidding murder, God teaches us that He abhors sinful, abusive, murderous words that can be directed to the neighbor. The abusive husband does this to his wife. He uses words which are intended to cut, which are intended to to, to destroy, which are intended to make her feel absolutely worthless. Instead of reminding her and teaching her that God is the God of love and that God is the God who gives life, and that therefore your life is precious in God's sight, the abusive individual would have the neighbor become convinced that his or her life is worthless. And the reason for the misery in my life is because you're worthless. And if only you would change, if only you would be a better person to be around, then my life would be better. Such is the rhetoric of the abusive individual. God abhors not only murderous and sinful words, but God abhors murderous and sinful thoughts. That's all it takes to become guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. And in the words of Jesus Christ, being in danger of hellfire is having thoughts of envy, hatred, and revenge rise up in my mind. All I have to do is contemplate how I am going to get back at this individual. This individual caused so much hurt in my life. This individual stole from me. This individual spoke evil of me. And so now I am going to dwell on angry, bitter thoughts. I know better than actually to get back at this person, but I'll content myself by just dwelling on how boiling mad I am at that individual to have thoughts of anger, desire of revenge, makes one worthy of being danger of hellfire. What does God require in this six law? Love. Love. If I'm not going to be envious, if I'm not going to be angry, I'm not going to harbor in my thoughts desires of revenge, then the only alternative is I'll love them. I will love the neighbor that God has put in my life. Love. Answer 107. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love. Jesus did no robbery to God in being equal with God. And yet Jesus Christ loved His people so much that He took upon Himself the form of a servant. He made Himself of no reputation, and he died for his people. That is, beloved, Christian love exemplified. Love for the neighbor does not entertain thoughts of how important, how great I am. Love does not make comparisons that well, I have this important calling. I have this important place in the church, in the school, in the home, 
in the workplace. And because I have this important, prestigious position and this other individual in my life doesn't have as much importance as me, that therefore I don't have to stoop down to that level. Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, became a servant. Love. Love the neighbor. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us. Well, who's the neighbor? The neighbor is the person that God in His providence has led into your life. We don't need to look for the neighbor. We don't need to go out of our way to figure out who the neighbor is. The neighbor is the person that God has already put in your life. The neighbor is the person who lives with you in your home, your spouse, your children, your parents. The neighbor is the person sitting next to you in the pews, sitting ahead of you or behind you in the pews. The neighbor oftentimes is the individual who is difficult to get along with. The neighbor, oftentimes the individual who was given something that you wanted. The person who got the raise or the promotion at work. The person who was put into office and you did not the person who became financially successful and you did not. The neighbor, oftentimes the person who is difficult to love, but put in your life by God's sovereign and good hand. And now God says, don't be envious of the promotion or apparent success of the neighbor, but love him. Do good, even to the neighbor. But what if I think my neighbor is my enemy? What if my neighbor has done a grave injustice to me? Jesus addresses that as well in Matthew 5, 43-44. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. You know already who the neighbor is in your life. The God of love and the God who created life calls you to love him. There's urgency to this commandment. The Christian may never have an attitude of complacency when he contemplates the calling that God gives unto him in the sixth commandment. The Christian may not entertain thoughts of, I will do this. I like the idea of what is taught here about loving the neighbor. And and someday I'm committed that I will love the neighbor, but not today. Not today. It's, it's, It's asking a bit too much for me to love the neighbor today. In two different ways, Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 teaches us the urgency of loving the neighbor and loving the neighbor now. First of all, there's verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has aught against you, and leave there your gift before the altar and go your way first be reconciled to your brother and then 
come and offer your gift. What Jesus is speaking about here is worship. The Old Testament, the worship of God would have happened in the temple where the altar was found. In the New Testament, the worship of God happens especially in the house of God, the sanctuary wherein we gather Sabbath day by Sabbath day. And the instruction that Jesus Christ gives unto His disciples is, if you come to God's house, and on your way to God's house, remember that your brother has aught against you. That is, you remember that there is a breaking down of the relationship between you and your neighbor then immediately stop what you are doing, go seek out the neighbor, and be reconciled unto that neighbor. To the best of your ability, show Christian meekness and humility unto the neighbor. Confess whatever faults you may have done unto the neighbor. And seek reconciliation with that neighbor. Now certainly... The only way reconciliation is going to happen is if the neighbor then receives that confession and confesses his faults. It takes two to come together. We understand that. But Jesus Christ is saying, you do your part. You seek out that neighbor and try to be reconciled unto him to the best of your ability before you even come into God's house on the Sabbath day. And Jesus Christ, as He commands His disciples to be reconciled with the neighbor before worshiping God in the holy place, does so for a very practical reason. The practical reason that Jesus exhorts disciples to be reconciled before worship is this. It is exceedingly difficult, if not absolutely impossible, to worship the Almighty God when my mind and my thoughts are filled with the difficulties and the brokenness of my relationship with the neighbor. If I come into God's house on Sunday and all I can think about is how the neighbor did this and the neighbor did that and I am so upset about what the neighbor has done unto me, then how am I going to lift my thoughts up on high and worship the almighty and transcendent God who dwells in the heavens and has this earth as His footstool? Jesus, with a pastoral love and compassion for His disciples, exhorts them, yea, commands them, first, Be reconciled with your neighbor. Then, come into God's house. But there's even more urgency here. And the second aspect of the urgency is found in the words of Jesus in the two next verses, verses 25 and 26. Agree with thine adversary quickly. Whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. What Jesus Christ is using here is a figure of speech to show what is the seriousness and the urgency of being reconciled with the neighbor. And he's showing here what happens if we are not reconciled. If we are not, then at any time, we don't know when, at any time the adversary could deliver us to the judge, and the judge could then offer a verdict, and the verdict that the judge offers of us is guilty, And then upon finding that guilty verdict, the judge hands us over to the officer. The officer ties us up, puts us in handcuffs, and the officer then leads us into prison. 
locks the door behind us, puts us in prison, and then Jesus says, you're not going to come out of that prison until you have paid the uttermost farthing. That is, the last payment for whatever injustice you have done to the neighbor. Jesus, in using this illustration about a judge and an officer and a prison and paying the uttermost farthing, is directing our attention unto God Himself. God is the judge who makes the verdict of either guilty or innocent. And for the one who refuses to be reconciled quickly with his or her adversary, that is to say, the one who continues impenitently in the sin of holding grudges, God's judgment on that individual is guilty. And God gives us, as it were, in handcuffs to the officer, His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus executes the judgment on the guilty individual, putting us in the doors of prison. And there God exacts payment until the uttermost farthing has been paid. The prison where Jesus sends the unrepentant grudge holder is hell. And there in hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth as God exacts from that individual the payment for the sins which are made. And you and I understand that there is no payment that is sufficient ever to satisfy the judgment of God by us as human beings. And so if we are cast in hell, there is no end to it. The uttermost farthing never will be paid. But hell goes on into eternity. This is the seriousness and this is the urgency of being quickly reconciled with your brother while you are yet in the way with him. You do not know when death will come and take you off of this earth to stand before the holy tribunal of God. We might think, I have time yet. It's too early. It's too soon to be reconciled. Later on, this will happen. But how do you know that God will give you tomorrow, next week, or next year? Agree with Him quickly while you are in the way with Him, lest you stand before the great judge. When we begin to see the severe justice of God against violations of the sixth commandment, then our eyes are opened up for our need for the gospel. That's our only hope, is it not? When we see this law that God has given unto us, then we see the absolute impossibility of us ever keeping the law of God. How high is the standard that God has set for us in giving us this prohibition, thou shalt not kill. God is not in this commandment simply saying, don't physically end the life of your neighbor. But God is requiring in this commandment, love your neighbor. And God is not in this commandment simply saying, love those who are your brethren. Love those who are your kindred, who are your family. Love those with whom you are in agreement. 
But it's okay to have grudges against those whom you are not in agreement with. No, God in this commandment says, love even your enemies. Verses 46 and 47 of Matthew chapter 5. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? If you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? So you respond by saying, well, I do love people. Look, I love this person. I love this person. I've got, got a large people of, in my life that I love. Okay, then my next question, do you get along with those people? Are they your kindred? Are they your brethren? If you only love the people that are easy to get along with, that you are one with, but you're willing to hold grudges against the person that is more difficult to get along with, then Jesus says, you've made it to the level in Christianity where you're equal to the publicans. What reward do they have? God does not call us to be publicans. God calls us to be Christians and exemplify a Christ-like humility and meekness in the relationships that we have with one another on this earth. And when our eyes are opened up to this standard that God has set before us, then again we ask, who could keep it? Who could raise their hand and say, yes, yes, this is me. I've done this. I've blessed my enemies. I've shown humility at all times in all relationships of my life. Even when I've been hurt, even when the neighbor has wronged me, I've, I've shown love unto them at all times. None of us, as the Spirit convicts us of our sins, none of us would say, I have done it. And it is here then at the darkest hour that the light of the Gospel shines all the more clearly. It is at this point when we see our total inadequacy, yea, even our lack of desire to keep the six commandment. And we see what a burden is ours because of the guilt of our sins. That then the amazing grace of God is magnified as God in His love gives unto us the Holy Spirit who assures us of the finished work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel is this, beloved the uttermost farthing has been paid. We said, humanly speaking, it would be impossible for the satisfaction and justice of God to be, to be, to, to be satisfied. It is not possible for you or for me to make a payment unto God for our violations of the Sixth Commandment, which would be enough to appease the justice and the wrath of God. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God, as it were, opened up the doors unto the prison. God, as it were, sent handcuffed into the prison of hell. One who was himself righteous. One who himself had never committed a sin against God or against the neighbor. One who had loved his neighbor all his life long. One who never harbored thoughts of revenge, of bitterness, or of anger. One who, although he had been mistreated all his life long, but especially in the trial and the crucifixion, did not demand for his right 
words to be given unto him, did not become angry at those who hanged him upon the cross, but with humility submitted to the will of his Father in heaven. As a faithful servant and as an obedient son, Jesus Christ relinquished his rights, his life, his soul. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. God exacted out of His Son the payment. He paid the price in full so that the justice of God is satisfied. And then God opened up that prison door and God took His only begotten Son out of hell. And God raised His Son to life again and has now exalted His Son and given unto Him a position of honor and glory so that every knee bows before Him and every tongue confesses to the praise and glory of His holy name. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. First John 3, verse 16. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we plead of Thee, wilt Thou be gracious, wilt Thou be merciful to us, wilt Thou cover our sins, wilt thou blot out our iniquities, wilt thou make us to be white, whiter than the new fallen snow, wilt thou give unto us hearts of humility, meekness, and love. Pardon even the sins that were committed during this worship service, and hear this prayer for Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.